I'm not sure if I should actually be the one up here answering questions because the, uh, the group of people at the front table here, I believed over lunch, solved uh, not only all of Canada's political problems, but Alberta and some of the United States and Europe as well. So well, that's the only table you were sitting at. <laughs> and had you been sitting at the other tables, you would find an equally engaging audience. Yeah, but probably so completely different answers. <laughs> okay, our first questioner, please. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. I'd like to ask Dwayne, uh, at least have his thoughts on it. Uh, it seems like Stephen Harper got elected uh, promising change, and uh, it seems to me that at question periods at least, and, and generally speaking, is that the attitude is that two rights or two wrongs make a right. Whenever a question is asked, it's always, well, you did the same thing, so why can't I do it type of attitude. If he was elected on chains, how, how can he uh, justify that kind of attitude? Well, I'm not sure if he really campaigned on change as much in 2006 as opposed to change from the Liberals. Uh, you know, he didn't really put – if you look at what his agenda was in 2006, it was a very straightforward, um, simplistic agenda. It was uh, an attack on the sponsorship issue in, in Quebec. It was we're going to reduce the GST. It was, you know, we're going to bring in new anti-crime legislation. Um, you know, there was a series of, of points, bit by bit by bit. I don't think he was a, uh, an attempt at a transformational part of the, of the country. Uh, we have had transformational leaders in this country. Uh, Pierre Trudeau was a transformational leader. Uh, Brian Mulroney was a transformational leader. Uh, he's largely been a transactional leader where he's focused on very small, specific jobs. And I think one of the reasons that we had an early election call in 08 is he had a very short list of things to do, and he had accomplished that list. Um, as far as some of the lines that, of Harper were blaming his predecessors uh, in question period, that, that's quite common. Uh, there's an old political uh, joke, uh, and it was any new leader, um, when he gets, uh, becomes leader, uh, is given three envelopes. And he is told by his predecessor, anytime you hit a political crisis, open one of these letters. And... The Prime Minister hits a, his first political crisis and opens up the letter and says, blame me. So you blame your predecessor, okay, and you do that. And that usually gives you a bit of wait time. Um, then you hit your second political crisis, and it says, uh, if you're the Prime Minister, it says, blame the provinces. And if you're a provincial premier, it says, blame the federal government. And so you do that, and that gives you a bit more breathing space. But ultimately, any leader is going to hit a third crisis, and when they do, they open up the letter, and it says, write three more letters. <laughs> so uh, for, for Harper to criticize his predecessor, um, that works. I'm glad he stopped talking about Canada's new government. Um, you know, that went on for, for way too long. Uh, at a certain point, you have to take ownership uh, of things. And, and the public actually has a fairly short attention span, and they've probably forgotten who uh, Paul Martin and, and John Chrétien uh, were. So I think that's, uh, I think that's why uh, uh, Harper focuses, focuses on that. And, and quite frankly, question period is not about questions. It's about political theater. Um, and and that's, that's a fundamental... And it's gotten worse since they televised it. You know, it's all about getting the, you know, uh, the righteous indignation and, and, and the various uh, insults back and forth. 
Um, it's, it's not about governing. Okay. Well, we try and keep our question period quite succinct and short <laughs> and cut down on the theater. So next question, please. Hi. Uh, my name is Gene Olexen. Thanks for coming today. Very informative. Uh, you mentioned that we will probably face uh, coalition governments for the next foreseeable future. Not coalition, or, minority sorry, governments. Minority governments, yeah. I meant. For, for the next foreseeable future, considering the five political parties. What are your comments on some way to make those things work better? And there's been some thought about electoral reform so that people are, or the people that we elect are more representative of, of the people. I'd like to hear your comments on okay. that. Um, electoral reform will actually lead to more minority governments and not, not less. Um, but if we did electoral reform that led to more minority governments, it might actually lead to that maturation of the political culture because you know going in you'll never get a majority government and so it forces you to work with with new parties if there was electoral reform I think there was a movement towards electoral reform um, maybe five or six years ago but the referendum that they had in BC uh, where electoral reform was defeated where uh, the referendum they had in Ontario where electoral reform was also defeated I think has put that in a box uh, for a while. Uh, I mentioned at, at uh, the very insightful table here that uh, Gordon Brown in Britain is also proposing electoral reform in Britain, and they will probably lose that referendum uh, as, as well. So I have my own thoughts about whether electoral reform is a good or bad thing, um, but I think it's off the table for the, for the foreseeable future because of what happened in Ontario and what happened in, in British Columbia. And it's never in the interests of a federal party to propose electoral reform because they've been elected under the system that got them there, and they're not going to want to. Uh, they're not going to want to change it. Okay. Next question, please. George Ney is my name. I think that uh, Canada is not ready for efficient government with minorities, and I understand that uh, Mr. Harper and his people tried to change that when soon after the last election they tried to take away the tax money going into the political parties uh, coffers uh, the Bloc Quebecois I understand only raises about 25% of the money that they need to run a campaign a lot, and, lot less pardon? a lot less, less and I'll that. explain that Yeah. so uh, unfortunately uh, the Liberals thought he was aiming at them and they didn't allow it to happen, nor did, did yeah. the press. But I think that's part of the, the problem here. You get a party elected in Quebec with taxpayers' money, basically. <laughs> yeah, I would, uh, on that point, I think that was the thing that led to the rise of the coalition. Uh, it wasn't about how the government was handling the economy. And I say that because if you listen to the speeches by the other opposition leaders, there was largely a consensus on how to handle it. You know, so Ignatieff was demanding, or Stefan Dion was demanding, you know, much more stimulus. You'll go into debt. Okay, well, he's done that. Uh, I think what united them was taking away the subsidy because, and there's some very interesting features about this on why it happened. Um, this might have been another gift that Jean Chrétien gave the Conservative Party. <laughs> uh, one of uh, his retirement pledges uh, that Chrétien did was getting rid of corporate and union donations to political parties. There's now significant limits of $1,000 on what a person, corporation, union can give. But in return, he said, we will provide a public subsidy. 
of a buck seventy-five a vote. That has seriously hurt the Liberal Party of Canada because the Liberals had been uh, largely funded through corporate donations. It's also hurt the, the NDP, but much more so the, the Liberal Party. The Conservatives, because of the legacy of reform, because of the legacy of the Canadian Alliance, was much more of a grassroots mobilization of, of money, and they're much better at raising money than the, than the Liberals were. And so the Liberals have become very reliant on this, on this public subsidy. The Bloc Québécois is very, very reliant. Um, it, in fact, hardly does any fundraising. Its fundraising totals for the Bloc um, are in a couple, are in the thousands, not in the millions. And one of the reasons for that is it allows their supporters to give their money to the Parti Québécois and to go provincially because they're both going after the same audience. So instead of, of saying, you know, we need 500 bucks from you and we need 500 bucks from you, they'll say, hey, we've got this money from the feds. Why don't you give $1,000 to the Parti Québécois? It goes even bigger than that. One of the reasons that they, they put the subsidy where they did is because it's very expensive to run political campaigns in Canada. Uh, as Mackenzie King once said, Canada has uh, too little history and too much geography, and it's very expensive to campaign. Not if you're only campaigning in one province where you simply get on a bus and you're not renting planes. So the block has been greatly aided by this. The other thing the subsidy has done is it actually has led to more instability in government because you couldn't be able to run campaigns on an ongoing basis if you relied on fundraising. But when you get that new subsidy that kicks in after each election, that gives you a pot of money that you can keep going. So I'm going to say something nice about Jean Chrétien. I think his idea and his intent was actually good. It was about getting rid of specialized interests in the political process, uh, unions, corporations. And in return, if you're going to remove that pot of money, you have to supply something different. So I think his intent was good, and we see this in many other countries, uh, most notably in Western Europe. But the effect of it, I think, has been uh, not what he expected, uh, unless he really was a closet conservative. Um, because it has led to greater instability, and it has, in fact, enhanced the power of the Bloc Québécois. And if there's one thing that Jean Chrétien did not like, it was the Bloc Québécois. So I think it's been an unfortunate circumstance, but you're stuck with it. Because any, the, the only way to unite opposition parties is to threaten to take it away. And I don't think we would have had the political crisis of a year ago if he hadn't put that on the table. Come on, we must have some more questions. While we're waiting, I, I have one myself. Uh, I wonder if you'd like to comment on the role of the Governor-General in the prorogation of Parliament. We're led to believe that the post is ceremonial, but I, I particularly refer to the first prorogation yeah. of Parliament last year by Stephen Harper, which it took several hours before Harper emerged from the meeting with the Governor-General. A couple interesting things. It, you're right. It is a ceremonial post, and on, on those respects, I think Mikhail Jean has been a very, very good uh, Governor-General. I'll also say nice things about uh, Adrian Clarkson uh, in that role as well for different reasons. But they also have tremendous political power that doesn't matter very much except when it really does. And uh, so th we haven't seen that situation since the, uh, the, uh, the King Bing affair back in the 1920s. Um, so for, you know, 70, 80 years, the Governor General has been solely 
a uh, symbolic post, and all of a sudden you're thrown into this constitutional crisis. I don't think the Governor General had any choice but to uh, adhere to Harper's request. We would have been in a tremendous constitutional crisis if the Governor General had rejected Harper's request. And there would have been a huge backlash against the Governor General and, and many other aspects because the whole principle is that our elected officials run things. You know, so when the Governor General gives the speech, it's written by the Prime Minister. Right? She is, that's the system we have. And for her to exert that power, I think, would have been tremendous. Why so what do you suppose they were doing the for a couple of like, hours? Hmm? What do you suppose they were doing then for several hours? Having tea? <laughs> I, I think it was, you have put me in a horrible spot. Okay? I don't want to be here. Okay? And I think that's what it was. I also think at least that was a professional way of doing things. You know how he prorogued the last parliament, like back in uh, early January? He gave her a phone call. I guess that's because the text message didn't get through. I, you know, I think <laughs> if you're going to have, if you're going to treat this as an important thing, then you treat it as an important thing. And you show up to Rideau Hall, you know, even taking your motorcade across the street, but you show up to Rideau Hall and you do it professionally. And so I think the Governor General is doing a, a fine job. I think she had to do what she did. I don't think she liked doing what she did or being put in the position of doing that. Um, and that's and that's what we have. Okay, thanks. Next question, please. Yes, my name is uh, Greg McCaughey, and a very well done talk. Thank you. Okay. Question: uh, The first question was on the funding. So the second one was, any answers to what we do with the block to help us through this this area we're in? The block is a very interesting creature. Uh, it was a temporary – a couple things about it. First, it was a temporary political movement. That's what it was designed to do. When Lucien Bouchard created it, the reason they called themselves the bloc is it was a combination of all sorts of parties. I mean, uh, Bouchard is a conservative, was a conservative. And, in fact, if you looked at some of his policies as Premier of Quebec, and, in fact, after being Premier of Quebec, he has shown himself to be a, a fiscal uh, conservative. It was a combination of liberals. So it was, a, it was an organization that was – temporary in other in order to get Quebec out of the country. That was in 1990, yeah, 20 years ago. Okay. And they have become very comfortable, very comfortable in power. They are ineffective. They will never govern. But what it does do is it allows a population to hedge their bets. Okay, and by keeping sort of uh, the knife at the throat strategy together in, in the block. And there are strategies of getting rid of the block. But those strategies might also mean breaking up the country. And so examples would be, well, get rid of the public subsidy. Okay? And I think we're, we're stuck with that for a while. Or they'll say, you can't run unless you run everywhere. Well, there we have a bit of a problem because it would say you can't be an independent Okay, that a party has to run in all parts of the, of the country. And what if the PQ put together a candidate from Lethbridge? They don't have to live in Lethbridge. They could live in Montreal. And they'll put those three, they'll put those other 225 candidates around the country, and they will get zero votes. Actually, some Albertans might vote for them in the hopes that they do leave. Uh, but that's a different story. Uh, so they're very, the only people who are going to get rid of the bloc are the people of Quebec, who are going to figure out that these are, you want to talk about fat cats, Okay, the Senate I've already talked about, but to be a backbench member of the Bloc Québécois, you have no responsibilities, 
you've got a nice pension, you got a nice paycheck, you're not that far, you can drive home uh, on weekends. Uh, it's a good gig. And eventually they're going to figure out we have no say in the government. If we keep electing the Parti Québécois from a federal... Hmm? Oh, sorry, the Bloc Québécois. We have no power in the federal government. And they don't. Name me a really powerful Franco-Canadian minister. I mean, Lawrence Cannon, but, you know, he's not what Lucien Bouchard was or Benoit Bouchard or Jean Chrétien, or Marc Lalonde, or any of those people, that Quebec has really lost power federally. And when the people of Quebec figure that out, or if they want to figure that out, or whether they just like hedging their bets, you know, it's, uh, it's that old line that what do uh, Quebecers want? A free and independent Quebec and a strong and united Canada. You know, they want divorce with bedroom privileges. And uh, that's what we're stuck with. Okay, next uh, question, please. Thank you so much for a, a really insightful statement about the federal, federal minister, prime minister. The question I want to ask you, I hope, for equal insight. We have a prime minister who is vindictive, who is power-hungry, who has mul multiplied his PR resources to an impossible possible level, and on and on I go. It's been a disgraceful reign, I think, of a, of a mean-spirited individual that I have a hard time respecting. At the same time, he is effective because he has consolidated power in his hands, as you pointed out. Yeah. How are we going to, with, with your experience and insight, my question is, how are we going to get rid of this distinguished gentleman? <laughs> Um, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, I'll start with the easy part. Um, I think he's got one more election. I think if he wins another minority election, uh, I think he's going to be done, whether that's personally done or whether that's the party saying, uh, you know, you've had three kicks at the can. Because I think there's a, a segment of Canadian society that accepts him as, uh, as a leader in doing certain things, but they... Nobody loves Stephen Harper. Now, Lauren Harper probably loves Stephen Harper, but no one has a real love for him. And part of that is Stephen Harper is a very, very unusual politician. Um, if, if, uh, if you brought in, um, most politicians love people, and they love talking to people, and they love meeting people, and they don't forget the names. Uh, Brian Mulroney, from a, forget about policy, but from a politician's point of view, was an absolute amazing politician. He was never without a phone, and this is pre-cell phone days, and he would always go into a room, and he would speak to every single person, and he would remember their names, and same with Bill Clinton would do the same thing. Um, I think the only prime minister in recent years that I would compare that sort of non-people person would be Trudeau, and Trudeau just had this aura some would call it arrogance, but an aura about him that he sort of rose above the people. But most politicians want to be in the room and they want a glad hand. That's who they, that's who they are. Stephen Harper is not that person. All right? Stephen Harper um, yeah, doesn't think that way. And is he controlling? Yes. Is he any more controlling than previous prime ministers? Probably so. But I think it's based on where the, he came from and where the party came from. I think 
history will look at Harper, and his biggest achievement was unifying the conservative party and winning an election. I think that is what he's going to be uh, to, to known for. And that required ruthlessness, and that required bringing people together who didn't want to be together. Um, he won the, the conservatives historically. Um, you may have heard the phrase Tory syndrome, eat their young, uh, and they have done so. Um, and, and that's been the case. Just ask Robert Stanfield, Joe Clark, Brian Mulroney, you know, on, on how the conservatives deal with each other. Um, John Diefenbaker, down the list it goes. Um, so that's been the nature of the party. And so Harper, to unify that, had to take these things. He also dealt with a very hostile media, particularly out of central Canada, in the 2006 race and the 2004 race that wanted to brand him as this extremist who would bring back the death penalty, uh, would ban abortion, would do all of these things. And they keep harping, some still do, that he's got this secret agenda, hidden agenda. Well, there is no hidden agenda out there. Um, Tom Flanagan wrote a book called Harper's Team. You know, the agenda is right there. You know, there's no surprises around Stephen, Stephen Harper. But I think that's, he, he felt there were enemies everywhere. And so what he had to do was muzzle people, keep everything under control, and keep his thumb on the, on the ground. And I think wearing the sweater in the campaign ad in 2008 was a mistake. Nobody's, it doesn't matter if you're holding the cat, you know, and shaking hands with your daughter and wearing the sweater. Nobody is going to think of Stephen Harper as a nice, friendly, lovable man. Okay? He'd be better off saying, I'm Stephen Harper. I'm a son of a bitch. (laughs) And that's what you want. Okay? Same thing with Pierre Trudeau. People did not love Trudeau. Maybe the Toronto Star, but outside of that, people didn't love Trudeau, but they respected him, even if they hated him. Um, and I think that's what Harper has to do. Well, that's what he has done. I think that's what he needs to continue to do. Having said that, if he is defeated in the next election, or if he only gets a minority government in the election, I think he's going to decide, I, I just can't do this. Now the Conservatives are in trouble because there is no heir apparent. There is no group of people sitting there who could replace um, Stephen Harper. I think there are some when you start putting your wish list together. You know, Jim Prentice might be one. Problem is, Prentice is another Calgary guy, right? Um, You say, well, we'll need someone from, you know, central Canada, someone from Quebec. Well, as I said, um, Maxime Bernier probably wouldn't make a very good prime minister. So... (laughs) You know, there's no heir apparent. Peter McKay might have been, but McKay's run into some stumbling problems uh, lately as well. So uh, I think the, the conservatives are, uh, are fine now, but, uh, you know, there, there's a shelf life on politicians. And winning three minority governments in a row, I think that would be the end of his, uh, end of his uh, shelf life. Yeah, now please, Van, come on with your question. Uh, my name is Van Christu. Thank you very much for a for a very informative talk uh, today. Uh, I uh, personally was shocked by how much I learned today, <laughs> and I really mean that. Uh, and the shock comes from uh, how come I uh, know so little about Canadian politics? I just uh, assumed that proroguing of Parliament to bring us back to the topic uh, of today was uh, designed for. Harper to be able to come last week to Calgary and talk to all the oil men personally rather than uh, do, do things in Parliament the way that uh, Prime Ministers usually do it. Um, my point is that, that I think a lot of us are losing interest 
in Canadian politics and, and provincial politics because we feel that the leadership, that the amount of contact and the amount of influence on our, on our leadership is corporate and that, that, the, that we don't have the, the, the usual democratic process operating. Maybe it's because we don't know enough the way I don't. But it's also because we know that most of those decisions are being made on the golf course or at meetings like Harper's in, in Calgary last week uh, with the oil man. Um, my question is this. Don't you think that we in Canada are in a crisis in terms of our lack of knowledge, my being that shocked about how little I knew about Canadian politics, our lack of knowledge of what's going on and how much we've disassociated ourselves with the facts about what's going on politically here. Okay. Um, two, two aspects to that. First is about corporate power. And again, I don't think that's brand new. Uh, and in fact, I think uh, Gretchen's attempt at bringing in the public subsidy for parties was an attempt at reducing power uh, of the corporate world. I would also say that Stephen Harper, of our most recent prime ministers, probably had the least connections to the corporate world. Um, he was very little known in, in the oil community in Calgary. Um, as compared to where Paul Martin came out of the business community, uh, Jean Chrétien coming out of the business community, Brian Mulroney coming out of the business community. Stephen Harper, after he left Parliament, headed the National Citizens Coalition, which is a nice NGO, but not a place where you're going to get wealthy. Um, so I think corporate wealth has, has been, is a problem, um, and, but it's a long-standing problem, and I would say Harper's probably less tied to that than, than others have. Uh, the second uh, part of the uh, the question, um, I just lost my... Which dealt with the disinterest... Oh, disinterest. ...that Canadians are feeling... Gotcha. ...because they cannot um, uh, be effective and they are disenchanted with what they see happening in both Ottawa and the provincial capitals. Okay. Um, I actually think last uh, December, December of 08... Um, played a great role in the political education of Canadians. Uh, I would say people now knew what proging was, <laughs> that they didn't uh, a day before it was, uh, it was announced. Uh, I think situations like this, there's a greater understanding of the role of the Governor General. There's a greater issue of the, the Constitution. Um, you know, in, in, in some of my intro classes, when I do the section on the Governor General, just eyes would glaze over and say, you know, is this going to be on the test and all of this stuff? Uh, not now. Right? So I think this is, this is actually increasing uh, political uh, knowledge. Um, I do have concerns about voter turnout. I used to be opposed to mandatory voting laws because I thought not voting was uh, also a choice. But I've now come to the conclusion that voting has gotten so poor uh, that we do need to put in some sort of mandatory voting law like they do in Australia. Um, does that mean you'll have people show up to the ballot box uninformed? Yes, just as they do now. But you get more uninformed people showing up to the ballot box. Uh, and the other, and, and I, I, I get this uh, with students because uh, every I deal a lot with the journalism students, and, uh, I, and I love these 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 kids. And, and they'll come in because they're the first ones who've ever thought of this question. So every election, it's why why don't young people vote? And I say, uh, I'll tell you when you'll vote. When you get married and get a mortgage, um, you'll start voting. The problem is that's not happening. And so there's a longer delay. And that it used to be young people didn't vote, and as they got older, then they started to vote. Well, now they're young and they don't vote. Now they're getting older. You've got people in their 30s with marriages and mortgages, sometimes more than one. And uh, they're not voting. And uh, I think that is... 
that is disastrous. So I think the way to increase political attention, I think, is, is mandatory voting laws. I would also say go back to enumeration. I am a big fan of, of voter enumeration. Enough of this, um, you know, continuous voter list that we'll do electronically. Because what enumeration did, A, it gave you a better record. B, it sent people going door to door, telling them an election was coming, getting their name down, and socializing them to the effect. So if I was king, um, well, I'd get rid of democracy, but no, if I was the political king, I would uh, bring in mandatory voting laws, and I would bring back enumeration. Okay, thank you. I'm going to have to cut you short there because we have time for one, just one last question. Hi. Am I here? Yeah. My name is Henning Mundel, and I want to ask you about, um, with the polls showing the liberals and the conservatives neck on neck, whether part of the rationale for the proroguing may have been what in the press now is called a potential Olympic bounce. It looks like uh, Harper is scheduled for all manner of events just now, today, tomorrow, and so on, and then the attendance of him and his cabinet and being visible at our Olympics, unlike the Beijing Olympics, of course. Mm -hmm. um, you will, if you're watching CTV, if that annoying song doesn't get to you, photos of Stephen Harper, and I might add Michael Ignatieff, you're going to see both of them. Um, I, I guess, and this might go back to the controlling aspect of Harper, is he has told his cabinet, he's told his backbenchers who are going to the Olympics, A, emphasize that you're buying your tickets on your own dime, and, and B, hide. But Harper is going to be front and center, and Ignatiev is going to be front and center on this Olympic bounce, if there is an Olympic bounce. And that's really going to determine on whether the hockey team wins a gold medal or not. If they lose, somehow that's Stephen Harper's fault. Um, as, as far as the poll numbers... Uh, I think they are a direct uh, response to the prorogation, but I believe the polls are very, very soft. And I think uh, you're, you're going to see a con uh, the Conservatives are going to build up a lead again, but not a big enough lead uh, for a majority government. Ignatieff just hasn't been able to, to identify with, with folks. And, and I might add that Ignatieff has also been told he's got to go to the Olympics and he's got to brush up on these sports because um, he is, you know, he's been framed as being someone who's just visiting the country, who is away for a large of these debates. And Michael Ignatieff is, is a very bright man. I've got a number of his books on my, on my shelf. Um, but the fact he wasn't here throughout you know, for 20 years, I think, has made an impact. So he is, uh, he's forgotten about the hockey. He's conceding hockey to Harper, but he has become the curling advocate. So you will see Michael Ignatieff at curling, okay, um, more so than the hockey. So, uh, again, if, if we win the gold in curling, maybe that will give Ignatieff the bounce. Okay, and, well, thank you very much. Thanks again, Dwayne, for an excellent presentation and for taking all our questions.